this weekend, students um, rallied around the theme of freedom, and um, I, I just want to highlight that. Uh, I actually asked Jarrett this question um, this week. I said, hey, in light of, uh, you know, Collide Weekend, I, I can shift gears for Sunday. He said, no, I, I think freedom uh, certainly includes uh, this particular topic that we're going to uh, address today. And so I, I, there's no cute intro, um, is what I would say. The topic that's on the table today um, is sexuality and how cultivated desires can be really uh, devastating to people. So there's no um, cute introduction. I will say this, that uh, it so permeates our culture and it so uh, is in every um, kind of matrix uh, that, that uh, is out there, whether it's entertainment, um, uh, commercials, certainly uh, books that come out, uh, magazine articles, even magazine covers that are there uh, at the grocery store, checkout counter, whatever. Th- this kind of um, cultivated desire, the biblical word for it is lusting, uh, is, is all out there. And so I just... I want to recognize that that's the case. I want to recognize that in our culture, there is a lot of brokenness um, around this topic. And furthermore, I want to recognize that in our lives, there is a lot of brokenness. And so I, with all of that in view, and again, with no um, cute intro, I just say freedom awaits. And it, it is the way of Jesus that will get us there. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27. If you're a user of the Bible app, our live event should be up. You can track along with that. You ready? Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. See, nothing cute about, there's no introduction that makes that, um, I would say, palatable in some ways, but man, we really need to hear it. There are four statements today, I think, fall right out of the text, and I want to invite us uh, to these four things as we think about um, the adultery of the heart, for the the, the cultivation of of desire and lusting in our hearts. There are four statements. Number one, there there is a context for what Jesus is saying. And I point you backwards to verse 27. Uh, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, um, Jesus, just like he did with murder, he's pulling that forward from what list? What list is he drawing from? The Ten Commandments. Okay. So the Big Ten, uh, God says, hey, this is kind of a framing moral code. It's not everything that God said to them about life with him, but it's, it's the big 10. If ever you're kind of lost on your way, you go back to those 10 and God's like, you do those 10, uh, we're going to be in pretty good shape. We'll figure out the rest of the details. So Jesus is taking one of those 10 and he's drawing it forward. Um, there is a context for that, the, the Ten Commandments being the most direct context, but the overarching picture of the Bible and the biblical story revolving around sexuality and desires inside of us and that kind of thing is a much bigger story. On pages one and two of the Bible, Genesis one and two, God says, he creates man and woman. He says to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I mean, this is part of that story. Um, as Genesis two tells it, when Adam and Eve uh, kind of come on the scene and meet one another, they are both naked and not ashamed. So there's that part further. There is an, ex- uh, an um, a kind of narrative explanation of what happens when our lives are not lived 
in congruency with what God has said all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There are all sorts of ways that people experience brokenness because they do not follow God's leadership in this area, whether it's King David, King Solomon, uh, the, basically the entire back half of the book of Judges, Samson and others. I mean, we just, there, there is, the Bible is replete with stories of people who experience brokenness because they did not follow uh, what God has said. Um, the wisdom literature speaks to us, like the book of Proverbs. Um, and it is, it is um, while it is not crass, it is very, very clear about some of this. It says something like, hey, if you think that you're going to carry um, this uh, and, and it just be okay, you will be like somebody who carries a torch right next to their chest and doesn't get burned. That's one of the things, one of the many things that it says about these, uh, this particular topic and on and on. I mean, we could, we could just keep going. There's this whole uh, chapter in the book of Leviticus about brokenness and, and uh, laws revolve. Anyway, there, there is a context for this. And Jesus points it, starts us with uh, the big, one of the big 10. You've heard it say, uh, don't commit adultery. But the prophets pick this up and then the New Testament picks this up um, with, a, with a picture and that picture is this, that, that marriage is God's chosen portrayal, his chosen picture of his relationship with his people. Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, some of these later prophets, and then certainly in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians 5 and other places. I'm, I'm giving all these references because I, I just want you to see that the Bible is, it has this all, I mean, you started page one and you end at the last page and it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Marriage is God's chosen picture of his relationship with his people. So to violate then the marriage covenant is to misrepresent how God is relating to his people and how he is supposed to, excuse me, how we are then supposed to uh, relate to God. It is to misrepresent that, it is to uh, paint over it, it is to paint a different picture. And so there is a context for this. And I think the context is, is really critical in understanding how Jesus is going to help us here. See that. Uh, the, the second um, bullet under this, uh, under this idea of context, is that when we think about sexuality, we need to understand this, that it is a gift to us from God. It is a gift that God gives to us from himself. Um, th this means that God defines it. He defines what it is and what it isn't. It means that God defines its purpose because he is the one who created it and he is the one who gifted it. He not only defines it, but he, he um, gives its purpose. He also sets its limits and he is the one who identifies its proper use. So one more time, he defines it. He is the one who determines its purpose. He is the one who sets its limits and he is the one who gives an expression to its proper use. It, about the only way that I know to have people, and I've, I've done this in multiple contexts, uh, but the, it, to, is to put this um, in, in front of our eyes. If you grew up like me, and some of you did, some of you didn't, um, I grew up in the church culture of the 80s. Um, we had all sorts of craziness around sexuality and this kind of thing. Uh, but but the, the, the single word that was associated um, with sex and sexuality in the, um, in the 1980s church culture was not freedom. It was no. <laughs> that was the, it was no. 
No, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And it, it created all sorts of havoc in people's lives and saved people from some things, but also created problems. And I just, the, the older I get, the more I'm in pastoral ministry, I, I just, I want to say what the Bible says and in the ways that it says it. And here's the way that the Bible talks about it. The, the Bible's answer to sexuality is yes. Why? Because it's a gift from God. But it's yes in a proper context. That's how you and I receive this gift, this gift from God to us. Um, we receive it. Uh, we use it in its proper context. We enjoy it and we say thanks. That's, that's the honoring thing to do. What is the proper context for sexuality? You see the circle around there. You probably can't read the small print there. But the idea is that um, the yes is fenced off by the idea of a marriage covenant. The gift that God gives us of sexuality is fenced off, if you will, by the marriage covenant. So you and I, we don't get to define it ourselves. We don't get to say this is one thing or this is the other thing or that's for then and this is for now. We don't get to do any of those things. We simply get to say, God, you're the one who made it. You're the one who um, understands it best. You're the one who defines its limits. You're the one who determines its purpose. And the answer is yes, but it is yes inside of the proper context. And that context is the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. And, um, Again, our culture is awash with other definitions and other um, expressions. But th this, this is how the Bible talks about it. And so if it's just inside of that, then everything outside of that is, well, it can be answered in any number of ways. No, not yet, not right now, not like that, any number of ways. But th there is a negative outside and the yes is on the inside. So that, that is the context uh, in which Jesus is speaking. And, and it's the other thing about this kind of brokenness. Uh, when we, when we um, uh, don't have the context appropriately uh, in our minds, um, sexuality becomes a transaction instead of a gift. I use it to get what I want from you. It could be uh, any number of things. But we, the people of God, when we, um, when we don't expect the other person to give me what I need or simply take what I need, that's, that is a better expression of this. So um, people uh, would take um, uh, arousal or acceptance or any number of things. They, they treat it transactionally instead of a gift. And when we treat it transactionally, it becomes devastating in um, uh, relationships. It becomes devastating in marriages. It becomes devastating in outlooks and how we view the world and how we view uh, those of the opposite sex or those people that we are attracted to, uh, that we are attracted to. And that devastation expresses itself differently um, for men and women. I'll just note this, been around a while, um, it, it, it comes out differently, but I will say this out of the past five marriages that have ended because of infidelity in the, the ones that I know of, the, the ones that I have been personally involved in out of the last five, three out of those five have been because of the wife's infidelity. When I started this whole ministry thing, it was, um, it was a lot less even. I think the cultural pressures and, and uh, currents have, have leveled the playing field uh, quite a bit. So uh, in, in a man's life, <clears throat> there's an attraction or a conquest that he wants, and that's what he thinks is going to make him happy. In, in, a, in a woman's life, as I best understand it, not being one, but listening, um, 
it, it, as best I understand it, it is the, hey, the way that that person smiles at me makes me happy. The way that that person looks at me makes me happy. The way that person listens to me makes me happy. The way that person, whatever to me, makes me happy. And therefore, what? Therefore, I am going to, uh, you know, pursue that. And, and that happiness becomes the currency of my transaction. I will give him what he wants in order to keep getting what I want. I will give her what she wants in order to keep getting what I want. There is a context for this. Second statement. Um, the other, the other quote, other, whoever the other is, whoever the other is, the other is not the problem. Uh, again, look at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with less than 10 has already committed adultery with her. Where, where does, where does that happen? In his heart, in his heart. The other person is not the problem. The problem doesn't lie external to us. Where does the problem lie? According to Jesus, right here. The problem is inside of here. The problem lies within us. We either lack opportunity or courage uh, because we fear getting caught um, and uh, th- therefore we don't you know, act in some way. But the problem is not the action. The problem is what's going on in here. If we think that um, Jesus is solely worried about getting our bodies involved in something, man, uh, we, we miss the level that Jesus is wanting to operate on because he's wanting to deal with us um, at the heart level. He's wanting to deal with us on the inside. And uh, I, I just, boy, as a pastor, I just want to say a couple of things here related to this. The problem is within us, and I'll say these two things. Number one, nobody is immune to this. Nobody. Nobody. Headlines. Just, just think about the headlines. You got older folks and younger folks. You got men, you got women who absolutely wreck their lives because they do not deal with this cultivated desire, this adultery of the heart. They think that all of this is external to them, but the truth is, man, it is all in here. And this is where the real problem is. And because this is where the real problem is, this is the place where Jesus wants to address it. The problem is within us and nobody is immune. You're a follower of Jesus in here. I'm really glad you've got a better answer than anybody else, but followers of Jesus are not immune to this. How many people did we see just this past year? How many pastors did we see it just this past year? They end up in a ditch because of their choices, because they didn't deal with what was going on in here. Nobody um, is immune. Um, And secondly, that if if we think um, that the action is the main problem, then what we don't realize is that the adultery of the heart actually changes the dynamics before any physical action would take place. If you've ever been in a setting where uh, one person gives the other person the look like that, you know that in that moment, it changes the relational dynamic. And now the people around who witnessed this and that person who received it, everybody's trying to manage now, okay, how do I protect myself? How do I move this or, or how do I get more of that or whatever? But it just changes the dynamic. The problem is not out there. The problem is right here. It's right here. And nobody is immune. And and the the action itself um, 
long before it gets to the action. I'll just say it that way. Long before we get to the action, there are relational dynamics that get changed in an instant because of what's going on in here. Um, the, the second bullet under this is that the other is not the problem. And this is a, a just to be clear kind of thing. The reason why Jesus quotes the, the, the commandment first is because physical, physical adultery is worse. Uh, I am the child who experienced this in my own family. And some of you have heard me t- tell this story or at least bits and pieces. I'm, I'm 22, I just graduated from college, and all of a sudden, man, my, my family, as I have known it, just absolutely goes sideways in a moment of revelation where somebody gets caught. And all of a sudden, there's all sorts of craziness that is unleashed on our family. Now there are lawyers involved and divorces and who's going to get what and how am I supposed to interact now? And do I trust this person anymore? And how long is it? Listen, and that's just the stuff in the family dynamics. Forget about all the wounds that it put on my own life and all the struggles that I've had since because people say, well, does that really affect? Yes, it affects me. Still to this day, I mean, there are things that I, I do and don't do because of that. And there are um, ways that I relate to my wife um, and the way that she relates to me because of that. And, and there are ways that I relate to my extended family uh, or don't relate to them in ways because of this. And there are stories that we have now as a part of the library of our family that we wish we didn't have. We wish we could take those books right off the shelf and burn them. Physical adultery is far worse. Why? Because it brings the sin of the heart into broader spheres of our lives. And so I say that to say this. Anybody in here, anybody in here who struggles with this in their lives and maybe just maybe has it in their mind, you know what, I kind of wonder if I could walk that path a little bit and just see what would happen. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because as big of a problem is that lies within, when it becomes an external problem, it creates far more chaos and catastrophe. Don't do it. Don't do it. So the question comes, and it's a fair question, but I, but I want to uh, address it, I think, the way that Jesus does here. He says, so uh, anyone who uh, looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed like." When does it cross the line into sin? Like when I noticed an attractive person, when I notice a, a, a guy uh, working out and he's a good looking guy, or I notice a girl who's on a walk or whatever, like when, when does it become, when does it cross the line into sin? And I'll tell you two things. Number one, as a pastor, I would just say this. I would say this about any particular issue, any particular area. I would say this. If you're asking that question, I'm not sure that that's the right question. I don't think it's the right question. How close can I get to the edge before I fall off the cliff and die? That's the question that you're asking in that moment. And I would just say to you, flirting with sin is never a good strategy, folks. Like taking that as your dance partner, that that does not end well for people. Instead, the standard of beauty is my spouse. And and so I I just enjoy this person that God has given me. Secondly, though, and this is more specifically to answer the question, when, when he says it in verse 28, uh, it looks at a woman with lustful intent. There is a, a cultivation there of that desire. It's not simply noticing, 
But it is more than that. It is cultivating that noticing. This um, uh, is a little bit like anger. We've talked about it for a couple of weeks. When the, the light bulb of anger flashes on the dashboard of our lives, hey, there's a problem here. What's going on? There is a difference between embracing that anger. Oh, I'm so glad you showed up and going, gosh, I need to figure out what's going on. In the same way, cultivation is the problem here. It's not that um, your eye catches something or something catches your eye, but it's what you do in that moment that matters. Or do you embrace this and cultivate it? Use that person for your own pleasure? Or um, do you uh, set that to the side, see them as God sees them, and then um, uh, and act accordingly? Don't, don't ask that question. <laughs> When is it crossing the line? That's a, it's a wrong question. Let's pursue holiness instead. But to say uh, in, in the same breath, it's, it's cultivation. Cultivation, that's a problem. Third thing. Third statement. First one, there is a context. There's this whole biblical revelation. Secondly, uh, let's be clear where the problem lies. It lies in me, not in the other person. The other person doesn't get to get blamed for my problem. I actually had somebody sitting in my office, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, who said to me that the other person, this was their conversation. Yeah, well, if so-and-so didn't dress like that, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, huh, somehow their attire has, that's the reason? Good, so you're blaming them for your issue. That's a problem. That's a problem. That's making them responsible for my spiritual life, and I don't think that's right. I don't think, certainly don't think that's how Jesus handles it. Third third thing, let's talk about the problem because it's serious. Look at verse 29 now. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. That's pretty serious. For for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, pretty serious here. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. So here's the problem. Uh, The the problem is there is something inside of me that I needed to deal with. And how serious is that problem? Well, how serious is it? He's talking about cutting things off and plucking things out, tearing them out. Here's what I would say about this. Take this issue as seriously as Jesus takes it. And how serious does he take it? That's pretty serious. Pluck it out cut it off. He says, you know, you, you got, uh, your, it's better that you do this, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Take it as seriously as Jesus does. So I want to pick up just on a couple of, um, passages here. They're in the Bible app. And if you, uh, have a, uh, uh, Bible open in your lap, you can flip over to James chapter one. This is verses, <clears throat> excuse me, 13 through 15. I passed it. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Here's what he says. Little brother of Jesus, reflecting on this kind of stuff, says here, "Uh, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So hear that. Hear that. Um, This is not God's fault. Some people lay it off on God. Oh, God, you made me this way. God, if you would take, if you just go ahead and take it this way. This is not, God doesn't get the blame. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Verse 14. But each, here's where it comes from. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own lusts. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? It brings forth death. That's the thing. 
So this is serious. So when we take it as seriously as Jesus does, then what we say is, Jesus, we, we want to hear you and we want to see the stakes um, that are in play here. And part of that is if we surrender to these desires, they, they may be in us, but if we, if we um, don't kill them off, they will kill us because sin, excuse me, desire when it conceives brings forth sin, sin grows up and it kills us. That's what he says. This is serious. And, and what we need to realize is this kind of cultivated desire, this kind of lusting inside of us, it cannot coexist with the love of God and the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom. First um, John two, uh, chapter First uh, John chapter two, verse fifteen to seventeen. Don't love the world or the things in the world because the, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. There's not room in your heart for these two loves. You can't do it. For all that's in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, and the boastful pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world, and this world and its lust, its desires, they're passing away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You can't have two masters in here to rule your life and to run it. Can't do it. And the way of freedom is not embracing every desire that comes along. The way of freedom is saying, Jesus, what do you want and what have you said is best and how then do I move forward? Um, How then do I move forward in light of that? Take it as seriously as Jesus does. And and I just, I I want us to see what is at stake here. What does it say? It's better that you lose one of your members, your whole body be thrown into hell, Better you uh, lose one of your members. He says it twice. What is at stake is life in the kingdom of God, both now and forever. That's what's at stake. Uh, Paul, reflecting on this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't miss that. Don't be deceived. Neither the immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers. This is quite a list. Swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's he saying here? People who live with this, people who um, embrace this, they, they don't inherit. The, this, is, this is really important for us to get. These are the stakes. People say, well, what what about strugglers? What about prodigals? Here's what I say. Those who struggle with it, that is a sign that God is at work. That is a sign that God is at work. So take it seriously as Jesus does. And then the second bullet, I would just say, take it seriously and do so in the way that Jesus does. And here's what I mean by that. If people think that you cutting off your hand or you plucking out your eye will fix this problem, you 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 got a whole other problem. Because you can cut your hand or pull your eye out, and guess what? You'll still struggle. Why? Because the problem is in here. The problem is in here. To, to think otherwise is to not know what Jesus is after and is to ascribe to him a level of shallowness in his work um, that, that he would not ascribe to himself. Instead, he wants to work on the deepest parts of us, the, the heart, knowing that the rest of it will come later. And uh, just like last week, I, just, I point you to a passage, Job chapter 31, about the verse seven or eight verses there, Job 31. And I would just say to you, um, you need a plan like Job had. And then secondly, you need a sense of the consequence if you don't follow that plan. 
Job says, I, I've made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look in this way. And then he goes on to say, man, and here's some of the consequences. If I do verse six, seven, eight, right in there, um, you need a plan to wrestle with this. And part of that plan is probably having people in your life who can ask those questions. And then secondly, you, you need a sense of the consequence. And I'll just tell you how this plays out in my own life. In the back of every Bible that I own, I think, I think, um, certainly every Bible that I use, there's a piece of paper like this. You can't see it, but at the top it says, consequences of a moral failure. And there's probably 20 or so bullets underneath things that would happen if, if I myself surrendered to these things. I have a sense of the consequence. Take it seriously in the way that Jesus says. Have a plan. That's good. Have a sense of the consequence. That's good. But Jesus needs to operate on the heart. He needs to operate down at this level. Last thing. What then is the answer? Like how does Jesus plan to work? And the answer is... He plans to unleash the righteousness of God. That is the genuine goodness of God deep down in our lives. And when he does so, when we put our faith in Jesus and we consistently put our faith in Jesus. And we take this area of our lives and put it in Jesus' hands and say, Jesus, please go to work in this. When we trust him, God begins to transform us. And these are just some notes here that I made. To, to, first, first of all, God's genuine goodness reminds us that God knows what is best. He's not just God, he's smart. And because he knows what is best, he also gives good gifts. These are not, um, sexuality is not a, a, a gift to be refused. Uh, it is a gift from God and it is good. He gives good gifts to his children. He knows what is best and he gives good gifts. Secondly, we, we are transformed when God's genuine goodness comes into our lives, when we put our faith in Jesus and continually put our faith in Jesus, the grace of God that is unleashed in our lives takes the genuine goodness of God and it, and it pushes it down so that it seeps into all different uh, parts of our lives, into the very crevices of our lives, and we are transformed at the level of our desires. It's not that things don't pop up on occasion. It's that we know what to do with them. It's not that things don't kind of come out of the blue on occasion, a thought or a look or whatever. It's that we know what to do with that. And the desire, we, we begin to want what God wants. Part of what he wants is, is this next thing. It, in our marriages, in our important covenantal relationships, we honor that covenant through faithfulness. I will continually be faithful um, to my spouse. I will continually be faithful um, to, to, the, to the things that, I mean, to these people that, that I have in my life. I, I honor this covenant through faithfulness. That's part of how God's genuine goodness goes to work in our lives, to honor the covenant through our faithfulness. And lastly, the fourth one. We, we look, instead of sh um, at a shallow level, the, the level of appearance. We, we look deeply at others. We look deeply. Because seeing someone and being attracted to them in a moment, that's one thing. But seeing someone and knowing that they were made in the image of God, I, I think part of the problem, um, it, not all of the problem, but part of the problem is that we don't look deeply enough. We see a person, we go, oh, I kind of like their form, I like their appearance, but... but 
Listen, they are made in the image of God. They are loved deeply by God. Jesus came and died for them so that they could spend eternity with him if they'll put their trust in him. We need to look deeply at this person and not settle for a shallow expression of this. The genuine goodness of God, when it goes to work in our lives, when it permeates our lives, it helps us to look deeply at the other person, to see them as God sees them, to see them for who they are. So, so what do we do here? What, what, where do we land this? I'll just give you a couple of things. There are some people in here, again, a little bit like anger, who say this. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I don't think that God can do anything about this with my life. I mean, this area of my life, man, I've tried, I've surrendered, I don't know. I just don't think he's going to be at work in this area. Or maybe even more hopelessly, I don't think God can work in this area. And I say to you what we said last week about anger. If you have no hope that Jesus can set you free from these things, that the freedom that he died for and rose again for um, will not be yours, I want to say to you on the testimony of God's word and the testimony of many people in the room, this guy included, Jesus can set you free. He forgave sin and he conquered death, including this kind of death, so that you and I could live as free people. Brokenness may be part of your story, but it doesn't have to define the story going forward. He can set you free. Some people say, well, um, I'm not sure I want him to. That's really good and honest. I really appreciate that. And I would simply say, you, the best thing that you could do is to say that out loud to somebody and say that out loud to God as many times as it takes. And some people, this last group, they, they said something like this. Man, if, if people only knew what was in my past. If people only knew what somebody had shown me or what had shown up on my computer screen or what I looked at or what I indulged or what I thought or what I felt, what I have done, if people only knew. The shame, man, it would, it would chase me out of every, it has chased me out of every relationship, important relationship. Here's what I'd say to you. God knows he knows. He knows every thought. He knows every pixel that has shown up on your phone or on your computer screen. He knows every fantasy. He knows every wondering. He, he, he knows all of it. And listen to me, his heart towards you has not changed. He wants you to know that you are loved dearly. He wants you to know that Jesus died and when his death was finished, he said it is finished, that it accomplished the payment for every sin, no matter how heinous. And he wants you to know that the power of God can be at work in you to transform your life. If Jesus got up from the dead, he can help you with this too. He knows and he hasn't turned his back.
He's inviting you to lay some things down, to put some things in his hand, maybe to say some things out loud, but he's inviting you to freedom. That's what he's inviting you to. You can be free. So I want to pray. We'll sing a song of commitment, and then um, we'll have a <clears throat> be dismissed here in just a moment. Let's, let's take a minute and pray. And uh, as you bow your heads, maybe you want to just set something that God has specifically said to you before him. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for someone that you love dearly. A parent, child, grandkid, best friend, spouse, whatever. Maybe you want to set something before him on their behalf. Your word says, Father, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And we don't have to be enslaved to our kind of old ways of life. So I pray, in the name of Jesus and for his sake, among these people that you love dearly and that I love dearly, I pray, God, that you would set some folks free today. You would destroy strongholds, decapitate the lies that are in them and coming at them. The cross and the empty tomb would be foremost in their minds. And the message that those two powerful events say, you are forgiven and you can live free. They would buoy in them whatever faith may be left generated if not and they can God you today would be a first step in freedom for everybody in here thank you God for the ways that you speak to us help us now to live in light of that this is what I ask now Christ's name amen